This is The Doctor Is In, your bi-weekly podcast that discusses all things technical and not so technical. The Doctor Is In podcast is produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and sponsored by DX Engineering, helping you shrink the globe. See their website at www.dxengineering.com. And now, here's your host, QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and the doctor himself, Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Hello, I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY. And I'm Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Something we haven't talked about very much, Joel, in all of our podcasts. We tend to be HF-centric, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But really, there's a whole world of 50 megahertz, and we talked about that from time to time. But it has its own flavors of propagation. And I thought this might be a good podcast to just touch on several of those. I think that's a great idea. And I think, you know, one of the things is that most new hams start out in VHF, UHF operation. And typically they do with a handheld transceiver and their idea of propagation is line of sight, which is not quite line of sight, a little further than that usually. But um, that's what's mostly used for FM operation. And an extended range is generally provided by repeater stations. So you get longer than line of sight by having multiple hops through repeaters. And sometimes there are networked repeaters that that have even more possibility of extending the range. But that's not the only way that you can extend range on VHF and UHF. Perhaps the easiest requiring a small station is sporadic E-layer. That's one of my favorites. Yes, oh, me too. The E-layer of the ionosphere is closer to Earth than the F-layer. In years past, the F-layer gave regular long-distance path for paths for worldwide HF propagation. Yeah, at least until we lost the sunspots. But yeah. no, it's still there. I'm it's just, still there. I'm joking. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not as dramatically there as it used to be. Right. But it is there. The E-layer, and the, the uh, F-layer is typically a couple hundred miles high above the Earth. The E-layer exists from about 60 to 100 miles above the Earth. And um, what's interesting is that supports VHF communication. And... HF on the upper band, like 10 meters particularly. Uh, so particularly 10 meters and 6 meters. Yes. What's nice about it is because it's close to, closer to the earth, you don't need as strong a signal to get there. Not at all. So you can work people with a, a low dipole, um, 10, 20 watt station, on, uh, typically on single sideband or CW. And it's a lot of fun because what happens is it is sporadic, which means it's not there all the time, but it's there a fair amount of the time. And... Um, a lot of times people don't know it's there because they aren't using it. Yeah, but true. But you can, you can uh, put your FM broadcast radio on an unused channel that's assigned <laughs> but uh, not active in your area. Kind of watch for signals to show up. And if they show up, they're probably coming by sporadic propagation. That means sporadic is happening and supporting uh, frequencies up in the 88 to um, 108 megahertz region. Especially if you're listening to the low end of the FM yes. band, you know, where the educational stations right. tend to be, uh, the low power stations. If you're hearing those from 500 miles away at, say, 88 megahertz, then you know sporadic is happening. Absolutely. Of course, you can also listen to the um, uh, six meter or 10 meter calling frequencies and see what shows up or look at the um, DX uh, spotting networks on the internet. You'll see people identifying those um, happening also. And of course, now with the FT8 mode, if you're sitting on 
50.313, you can just have your computer monitoring, sitting there monitoring FT8, and when sporadic E opens up, you will see suddenly that you're decoding stations. And these people are exchanging contacts at relatively low power levels. Yep. I guess the one problem with that is that uh, the signals to support FT8, the fact that FT8 is supported does not necessarily mean sideband will be supported. That's true. If you're getting FT8 coverage on uh, 6 meters, perhaps 10 meters will will work with uh, CW and single sideband if you want to do that. But I think that's what most people do in uh, VHF contests and so forth. At least that's what I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, there were times during some sporadic e-openings where I was able to work over a couple of thousand miles running just 50 watts on single sideband to, as you say, a dipole antenna. In fact, in this case, it was in my attic. It wasn't even outdoors, and yeah. I was still able to do that. It can be pretty exciting. It can, and, and you if you're getting a thousand miles, you're getting a two-hop path, yeah. probably. So I, I've done that too. I, well, I've worked out to the West Coast, uh, Mexico, and and so forth from Connecticut. And uh, you know, you don't work Australia typically that way, but uh, oh. you can work north-south also. You know, yes. uh, into South America. It just tends to be, as you say, sporadic, and it yeah. seems to pop up mostly from about May to September, and then we have another period. Typically, December and January right. where it pops up. Yeah. And these happen to line up with the VHF contests. <laughs> yeah. Strange it's funny how that works. Yes. Yeah. Another nice thing about sporadic E, not only is sporadic in the sense that it's there sometimes and it's not sometimes, but it moves around. So yes. if you're having sporadic E, you know, right now, um, let's say you, you work into Illinois, but in 10 minutes, you'll be working into Kansas. And then in 10 minutes later, you'll be working into South Florida. So it just kind of moves around. Like a cloud that's moving around yes. and reflecting the... The signals, which it may be actually yeah, a cloud people, of ions. Yeah. People think of it in terms of a cloud. It's a very easy mode to, to use, and um, you can have a lot of fun with it. That's usually you know where beginners start on uh, VHF single sideband and CW. But what happens is you get um, as you get involved in this stuff. Of course, you get more and more involved. Yes. <laughs> bigger antennas, bigger transmitters, and so forth. And then you have other things that you can do. Speaking of contests, um, December fourteenth and fifteenth this year coming up is the ARL. 10 meter contest and that is a wonderful thing to try because at 10 meters you, people tend to t tune on the band and they don't hear anybody and they say oh the band's dead right and the fact is the band may not be dead it's just that uh, everybody's listening and nobody's talking nobody's calling yeah yeah <laughs> but when you get a, a 10 meter contest you get people from all over calling you know in, in uh, good years when you have the f layer working up to um, 10 meters you get a lot of worldwide contacts but uh, in my experience in recent years you more likely to get sporadic E contacts, and you can have um, a lot of fun with that, and again, with very low transmitter power and, and small antennas. Yes. So give it a try. You'll have fun with that. Another fascinating aspect of VHF, UHF propagation, at least to me, is tropospheric ducting. Is that necessarily weather-related? Is it mostly related to weather? I think it's related, I would say, more specifically to temperature. Temperature. Okay. Temperature variations result in an actual, it's like a waveguide sort of thing that uh, the, this duct that's set up and it, it's a very low loss kind of thing. It goes on a point to point path usually. And you've often, you've probably seen it. You're watching channel two back when we used to use antennas for yeah. television. 
all of a sudden, instead of watching the, your New York station, uh, something from the deep south comes in. Yes. <laughs> Completely overtaking the New York station. And that's a typically a tropo duck. And that's um, that's what it does. It, it's very low attenuation, and it, it's kind of surprising. There have been a couple of instances in my life where I've been driving around and I'm listening to 2-meter FM on the Simplex channel, 146.52, and suddenly I'll hear a station coming in from a couple of hundred miles away. Now, this is just to a mobile whip antenna, nothing fancy. And I'm able to speak to that station. It may only last a few minutes, but in and out. Uh, that's amazing to me. And it seems like I've always associated that with summertime thunderstorms. Well, maybe that is a temperature inversion or a temperature phenomena. Could be. And there's also troposcatter, which is a, uh, a different thing. The military have used this with uh, up to like 800 megahertz using kilowatt transmitters and high-gain antennas. They can provide reliable communications for up to about 100 miles by just uh, scattering off of the troposphere. What's uh, nice about that for the military particularly is it's an alternative to satellite communication. Of course, satellite communication is something that anybody can listen to for you know, essentially half the, the world. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they're out in geostationary orbit, sure. This is a point-to-point -point system that is not uh, exactly point-to-point, -point, but it's, it's wider than point-to-point, -point, but it's nowhere near as wide as a satellite. So it's a little more secure in terms of being eavesdropped upon. Also, signals can propagate via scattering from meteor trails. Yes. And that's... That usually takes some pretty hefty gear. Although with Joe Taylor's WSJTX software, oh, yeah. he has a meteor scatter mode there that works at relatively low power levels. I've been able to use that to make contacts using just 100 watts, in my case, on 6 meters, and once again, just using a dipole antenna. Not as effectively as the guys who are using oh, yeah. beam antennas, but still, it, it did work. We had a person that worked here that was an absolute fanatic about that. And had, I guess he had a quad array of four big six-meter Yaggies. Oh, on, yes. On azimuth yep, I remember. elevation. And he would go after meteor trails like crazy. Well, he was bouncing those off the moon, too. That he too. was using moon bounce with that yeah. thing. So that's... <laughs> uh, I used to share an office with a guy that was big into moon bounce back in the 70s. And he had a monster great array of two-meter Yaggies and uh, high-power transmitter and uh, he would typically by scheduling contacts with people make contacts he worked um, 100 countries on, on probably two meters six meters two meters 470 and 1296 <laughs> by moon bounce i think i wouldn't be surprised of course that's something now that again thanks to joe taylor and wsjtx people can do that with uh, really uh, if the person on the other end let me back up the person on the other end has a powerful station you can at least exchange enough information to consider it a contact with this digital mode with, say, an 11-element Yagi and uh, 150 watts. Yeah, and I think you can, all even with um, single sideband, if the other station is big enough, the other station is doing the heavy lifting. Yes. But if they have a big a dish or a big uh, uh, phased Yagi system with a lot of gain, you can uh, work them because their transmitter puts out a lot of power and you can hear them with your small antenna. And they can hear you because for the same reason that, that uh, your 150 watts and your Yagi gets received by their very high gain antenna and very low noise receiver. So that the distant station can do all the hard work. And you don't have to. That's right. But the uh, the 
the digital modes work even better. Absolutely. Now, getting to microwave, what are those guys? Is that tropo? Is that what they're, uh, when I hear them making 600 mile contacts on 10 gigahertz, what propagation mode typically is that? Yeah, tropo scatter usually is above 800 megahertz. And usually we talk about microwaves as being um, 1,000 megahertz. Or, so that is probably what it is. Okay. I've heard of microwave operators bouncing their signals off of rain clouds, rain scatter, they call it. And even off of airplanes, if we're get we're getting into exotic propagation now, on, you know, above fifty megahertz, but still, it's it's fascinating. Well, aircraft can be very effective if you live in the right place. Mm-hmm. If, if you if you have a, a landing pattern that has you know aircraft every minute or two going into Logan or going into uh, JFK that goes past your house, you know, a few miles away, you can have an almost steady reflecting surface that. There you go. It's it's a uh, we would call it a bi-static radar, I guess. <laughs> but uh, so there's there's much more to VHF than FM, obviously. Well, let's take a pause, and we'll hear from DX Engineering, and we shall return. Okay. Ever talk to a salesperson who didn't know the difference between a rotator and a rotary phone, or a Yagi and a yo-yo, or a ballon and a ballerina? You'll never have that problem with DX Engineering. When you call us, you'll talk directly with knowledgeable amateur radio experts, people who speak your language. When you contact DX Engineering, you're dealing with operators who are as passionate about the hobby as you are. This means better service, expert technical advice, and a commitment to your complete satisfaction, even long after your purchase has been made. Whether you're newly licensed or a long-time operator, you'll always find a friendly ham who understands exactly what you need on the other end of the line. Plus, you'll find a huge selection of amateur radio equipment, get the fastest shipping in the ham universe, and shipping is free on most orders over $99. Let's talk about your station. Visit us at dxengineering.com. That's dxengineering.com. And we have returned. And we have a question from, and I hope I pronounce her name correctly, Amina, I believe. I hope so. KJ7FOY. And she's asking, I'm about to upgrade to my general class license. What HF radio should I get? Whoa. Talk (laughs) about a broad question. That is a broad question. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I have to say, as a general rule, we don't make specific recommendations about equipment. We can talk in general terms and categories, but I can certainly point you to some resources that might help. Recent editions of the ARL Handbook for Radio Communications, the ARL Handbook, have included a CD-ROM, and now most recently they're on uh, download arrangement, that includes a detailed report that discusses the features and specs of all 100 to 200 watt transceivers that were available at the time of the publication. You mean the one you put together? I did in the past. I My health issues, I dropped out of that this last time, but uh, I had been doing that before. I think it still carries your name. Well, that's okay. I think you're <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the credit, but I didn't do the work. <laughs> but basically, they are grouped by price category, and uh, there's quite a variety of prices, and that's one of the issues here. The, 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 um, the lowest price category is under $1,000. And then the highest one is over $4,000. So there's quite a range of prices. Each one of the radios is described in this publication. It also gives the specifications from lab testing that, you know, we've tested all these in the lab as part of product reviews. 
So you get a lot of information. Now, I uh, checked our records, and it doesn't appear that you have yet joined the ARL. I mention that because if you join, you will have access to every equipment product review that has been presented in QST since 1984. That's true. And that is a really good resource if you're thinking about buying a radio. Product reviews, if you haven't seen them, include um, the, the reviewer's impressions of operating the equipment. They usually run it for a month or two in their station in place of their regular rig. And then also it has all the very detailed laboratory evaluations of all the important parameters of the radio so you can compare them. The other thing that's a good thing to do is try to get an opportunity to try out various radios at other ham stations if you can. If you're a member of a club, you will probably run into people that have a whole range of different equipment in their station. And most hams will be happy to discuss their equipment or may even invite you over to their stations to try out their rigs. And, and nothing uh, beats getting your hands no. on the radio itself. And uh, and perhaps your club has a station in which you can get a chance to try out one or two transceivers there. Many clubs also have loaner rigs intended to let new licensees try out different radios and, and perhaps use them for some time to get an idea of whether they'll, they'll work for you. Now, if you ever get to the East Coast, the ARL station, W1AW, includes three or four guests operating positions that each have two or more transceivers that you can try out, and they tend to be fairly current transceivers. Now, it's worth mentioning that even the least expensive of today's transceivers outperform even the best transceivers of 30 years ago in terms, Absolutely. Of, in terms of features, and, uh, and they're really at a much lower price if you take inflation into account. Now, I would only consider a radio in the 100-watt or higher class. Uh, the idea of operating low power is, is a lot of fun. A lot of people enjoy doing that, but I think it's likely to be frustrating for a new operator. You don't need the extra challenge of trying to work with low power. It's probably, as you start out, you probably won't have great antennas either, and it's really um, a couple strikes against you. So you want to have that 100 watts. And if you want to try uh, low power, you just uh, you can usually turn the power down and try it. Well, yeah, true. But if you have a low-power radio, you can't turn it up and get 100 watts. <laughs> now, most of the expensive transceivers are expensive because they offer extra features that are needed for the competitive contester or DX chaser. Well, they will also work for the beginner until you know what your interests will be, and they will likely change over the years. It is not likely that you will really benefit from the extra bells and whistles, at least at Probably first. Probably not, no. In addition, they tend to bring with them extra knobs and switches that will add to the complexity of operating the radios. Yes. And, and um, you probably don't need that. And further, there's a good chance that things will get set to the wrong position and it won't work at all. <laughs> We've had all seen that. There's another issue is to decide whether you want to get a new or a used radio. Um, used radios are a lot less expensive, of course. But the thing to keep in mind is that many manufacturers no longer support equipment that is more than a few years old. And if so, if you buy a used piece of used equipment, you may not be able to get it repaired easily. It's always There's always a way, but can be uh, quite a, a chore to get an old transceiver repaired. Now, the exception to that would be buying one from somebody that you know well enough to be sure that they have your best interests at heart. Yes. Which might be somebody in your club. <laughs> or not. That's helpful advice, Joel. Thank you. My pleasure. If you have a question for the doctor, email us at doctor at ARRL.org. The Doctor is in podcast is sponsored by DX Engineering at www.dxengineering.com. Background music provided by Purple Planet at www.purple-planet.com. This podcast is copyright ARRL. All rights are reserved. Until next time, I'm QST Managing Editor Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73, and thanks for listening.